Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. And Glenn, I think it's about time to move on from the fun facts we've been starting our episodes out with and, and move into a new thing. So uh, it'll be a little game here for the listeners as well. So I'm going to, well, actually, we're each going to take a turn doing this. Uh, starting off just a famous English phrase, saying, idiom, something like that. And we're letting the other one fill in the second half. Uh, so mine's, mine's gonna, first one here is going to be uh, nice and short. Let's see if you can get it. Uh, Bob's your blank. So I believe it to be Bob's your uncle. No, no, no. It's it's Bob's uh, your Patreon supporter by going to patreon.com slash double loop podcast uh, and, and signing up to be a, a patron of the show. I like it. Yeah, it's 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 kind of a new a new expression. All right, and what's yours? All right, so mine is, are you ready? Yep. Just a small town boy. Uh, took a midnight train going anywhere. Jeez, I'm blank. <laughs> trying to remember what the exact next line is. Uh, what is it? Oh, so close. Uh, just a small town boy donated on Patreon, and we were very appreciative. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Or well, the journey song being just a small town boy right. living in South Detroit. South Detroit. Which fun fact there is no from. South Detroit. No, there's no South Detroit. There, Doesn't well, exist. Well, South Detroit is Canada, right? That is correct, sir. Very good. <laughs> I, I think they mean from the southern edge of the city of Detroit. Sure. No one from Detroit would ever say South Detroit. This is how you know it's written by people from somewhere elsewhere. else. Uh, San Francisco, I believe, is where Journey is from. Um, yes, but well, at least uh, mo- mo- most of them, I think. I don't right. know if the, the the songwriter, is, you know, is from there. But yes, not uh, not a term from from Detroit. So, uh, speaking of Patreon, I, I do want to give a, a big shout out. Thank you to uh, Jack, who uh, is uh, our newest uh, patron for the show. Uh, thank is that you, Jack, Jack from Texas? No, not that Jack. Different Jack. Oh. Uh, Hi, Jack. Thank you, Jack. And uh, we're going to keep trying to do give thanks and shout-outs to uh, new Patreon supporters as they show up at the beginning of the shows. So head on over there, even just $1 a month, and we'll uh, say hi and thank you uh, on the top of the show. We're going to talk just briefly about this article that we saw come over the line on Twitter. Uh, you can follow us at Double Loop Pod. A couple of the chapter titles looked interesting, so we thought we'd take a look at it. Uh, it's called Communicating Forensic Evidence Lessons from Psychological Science by Barbara Spellman, who's out of... University of Virginia University Law of, School. Right, University of Virginia. In, uh, in fact, um, I'll, I'll share a little bit of information and background. Sure. I, I believe I met her... Probably seven years ago or so, uh, Jay Kohler, who we've talked about before and reviewed some of his articles, and yes. you know appreciate what he's contributed you know, on the topic of error rates. He had a conference out at Northwestern. He brought in all these psychologists and um, uh, social scientists and researchers, and he basically had me and Leslie Hammer, uh, who were the forensic scientists in the room, to talk about either footwear comparisons or uh, fingerprints. And, you know, all these folks like Bill Thompson and I believe Barbara Spellman was there and Etail Drawer. The whole idea was that they were going to apply for some grant money. And he wanted uh, this to be a think tank of generating ideas and interesting research ideas that could um, bring together 
the psychologists and the forensic sciences. And I, I, I do remember having a brief conversation with her and some and hearing a little bit about her work on memory and, and how people recall things. I can't remember if she specifically did eyewitness stuff. I don't think she did, but she may have. But there was definitely some research she did memory cognition and how people recall and um some of the you know the the issues with that especially when dealing with not exactly eyewitness testimonies but obviously people who are testifying or lay people recalling from their memory what they observed or saw or did and so i i just i she has a very large body of academic writing and moved into the semi-forensic zone when she started talking about how jurors interpret what they're hearing and uh, some of those things, which is going to be a theme in tonight's paper that we're going to discuss a little bit, but we're going to use that as a jumping off point for some of our own stuff we want to share. Yeah. So the the two chapter titles or section titles in in this this article, uh, which even if you just search for that uh, that title, uh, Communicating Forensic Evidence Lessons from Psychological Science by Barbara Spellman. Um, I believe you can find it uh, online as a, just a PDF that you can download yourself as well. So yes. uh, two of the sections that really jump out, um, leave the statistics and jargon to the experts, parentheses, and stop torturing the jurors. And uh, under that, likelihood ratios and random match probabilities are terrible ways to present information to actual human beings. We, you know, we talked, especially about last spring, a whole bunch about uh, presenting information to uh, to jurors. Uh, even going back about a year ago, uh, after that conference that you you were talking about, where you had a, a mock jury from just a variety of different types of people, and uh, presenting different evidence in different kinds of ways to them. From all those discussions, one of the things that we kind of both took away is it, it seems like a presenting this information in a variety of different ways. It may be the best way because jurors aren't just a uniform group of people. They're very different, diverse group of people. And some of them need to hear it one way. Some of them need to hear it other way to best understand it for themselves. Uh, that was kind of my first reaction as well. I mean, there are some people that do need to hear it that way. Maybe most jurors don't, but I'm not sure if, if, if it'd be totally appropriate to totally abandon this idea. But she does have some uh, some, some thoughts on how maybe better to explain it. And um, so what we're going to do is kind of go through uh, some of her thoughts on this paper. And then, like you said, use that as a jumping off point. Uh, One of her thoughts is using analogies. And uh, so we thought we'd explore some of the more useful analogies that we like to use when we talk about uh, latent prints to either classes or uh, juries or judges or attorneys. And uh, just kind of walk listeners through through those analogies, and listeners can either apply that to their own testimony, or if you're not an expert, uh, gain a little better understanding of what we do when we compare. Yeah, and I have to say, I, I don't know that I want to spend a, a ton of time hashing out this paper. Uh, there are some things in it that really did rub me the wrong way, and the ultimate <laughs> thesis being is. You basically shouldn't be testifying to numbers to you know to to jurors, and I I kind of have a problem with that. I mean, at the at the end of the day, I don't like the idea that her thesis is these people who have to make important decisions don't understand numbers or science or mathematics or statistics. So you need to 
not use the that terminology and find some other way to connect with them and stop using numbers, etc. I, I get that point. I get the point that we need to find a way to connect with them. I don't like the idea that we're not supposed to basically be accurate if we can be accurate when we have numbers or conclusions or some way to quanti- quantify this. And I, I mean beyond fingerprints. I mean she, she chooses fingerprints talk quite a bit about, but DNA analysts aren't supposed to use DNA statistics. They're just supposed to give a general number and a feeling of surprise as opposed to <laughs> the actual number that that they have estimated based on these population databases. I, my, my, my fundamental problem with the paper and the thesis is maybe it's not the forensic science that's broken here. It's the system. If the jurors can't understand this, shouldn't we be really looking at our juror system and and who is making these decisions? Why are all of us supposed to change and give potentially less accurate information or much, much more open to interpretation depending on how they take the analogy? Uh, it, it seems wide open for interpretation if they don't understand your exact analogy as opposed to giving them these characteristics or these features occur one in a million times. If they can't understand that, that's kind – I mean, yes, it's my my responsibility to try to help them understand that, but right. it's kind of not my fault. Maybe the whole problem here is we should really look at this adversarial system. And that, that, why doesn't that ever come up in these articles? Why do forensic scientists <laughs> bear this burden of trying to fix all these things that's just inherent in a flawed adversarial system? It really did rub me the wrong way. I can kind of see it both uh, both sides of this because yeah, if there is some sort of you know number associated with things, so even let's say let's go back to the days of blood typing with with those kinds of numbers. Th- those kinds of numbers uh, are very much more understandable to uh, a juror. Twenty five percent, five percent of the population, sure. some number like that has this blood type. He's got this blood type. I can't imagine getting rid of numbers like that. On the other hand, I think one of her bigger points, well, I think she goes too far in her call for getting rid of numbers. One of her bigger points is if you have some insane number like the 63, one in 63 septillion, it ceases to mean anything in relation to the probability of you know, some other error in the lab, samples getting mixed up, cross-contamination in the lab, or sure. uh, an analyst misinterpretation of the data. Uh, again, as, because that number is accurate, assuming that nothing got mixed up in the lab and the analyst analyzed the data and matched up the peaks all correctly, getting back into the DNA thing. In the in the latent print world, say in, if there was a model again, depending on how big it gets, at some point, how useful is the number in relation to, is there a reasonable explanation of why someone would have touched that surface? Um, Did they have reasonable access? That kind of thing. I, I think partly, I can agree with the number still needs to be there for in certain scenarios, but in other times, the num the precision of the number getting down to that level and the septillion kind of level 
Well, then how how useful is it in that broader context? Is that you know what uh, I mean? Uh, yeah, to- totally. And guess what? Uh, people already have solutions for this quite some time ago, as I'm sure you're aware, but apparently the author is not. That uh, the UK, for example, if it's smaller than a billion, they just stop at a billion. So a trillion or quadrillion, they would simply say it's smaller than one in a billion and be done with it. Uh, um, or uh, some states like Minnesota and other places may simply say we would not expect to see this profile again in a world population. Uh, very understandable. I, I, like I said, I don't want to focus too much on some of the right. my negative reaction there because there are some positives in the paper that I think are some good takeaways. I just, again, I, I hate this idea of forensic scientists need to fix all this when there are inherent problems in the actual system that especially law professors and those associated with uh, you know, uh, the legal community just seem to really gloss over that the system that they support kind of the, the real problem here and the, the first big problem. One of the next sections she talks about is, is how there's a lot of misconceptions in forensic science and uh, correcting mm. some of these misconceptions <laughs> uh, is an important part of uh, having the jurors understand how to uh, correctly interpret the forensic data in relation to the larger picture. I think that as a theme, I think I would agree with it as a general theme. Some of her, when she goes into details about the misconceptions, I, I, I'm not uh, totally in agreement with. Yeah, I was particularly concerned that she is teaching students about fingerprints. Yeah, that, <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. Me. I was like, yes. eh, some of these things aren't quite right so let's let's go through uh okay. first misconception i just want to go through these four things the first misconception is that everybody has unique uh most lay people believe everyone has unique fingerprints and she, later on she talks a lot about uniqueness and how you can't prove it and focuses on this when i think this is while it's correct that it's not been proved or is provable at all that uh, all fingerprints are unique that's not the important thing. Um, while everyone right. may believe that, and it's not unreasonable to believe that, it's not necessarily accurate to say that, because it's just not something that can be proved. However, there is a lot of evidence, a lot of evidence, that suggests that fingerprints are highly discriminating. Instead of saying, well, you can't prove fingerprints are unique, all you have to do is then say, well, okay, fine, but I, I have tons of evidence that shows that they're highly discriminating. Right, and, and and especially when we're dealing with an entire fingerprint, and there are there are quite a bit of data that show that these distributions within source and between sources are very very distinctive, and it would be statistically quite unlikely that two people would ever share the same fingerprint again. Unprovable, I agree, but right. yeah, she makes a big point kind of here about nothing. That oh my gosh, most people believe that that you have a unique thing. You do, you do have a unique fingerprint. <laughs> You do. That, it, that's all. But, it, I mean, I, I like where she goes in, in the next couple. I, I right. know where she's trying to get to. She's, she's trying to find a way to bring up between source and within source stuff, which, okay, I don't have a problem with that. There's an easier way to do it, and I do it in my court presentations, which I'll share in a minute, but sorry. Go on, Eric. It's okay. Uh, the second misconception um, 
is I think is a very good point that she raises because I think I do agree with this that most people think that if there's a fingerprint it can always be used to identify somebody and ever basically every time someone touches something they leave a fingerprint behind agreed very much supported by NCIS and CSI and all these shows uh, Law and Order where every gun has a fingerprint on the trigger and that is just not the case right a huge amount of time when you touch something you don't leave a fingerprint that can be compared to the to the point of being able to be identified she lists us under misconceptions needing repair i agree but that's something that i at least for me i'm not sure about you comes up just about every time i go and testify i was gonna say the exactly the same thing uh, yep. so this is something that is being corrected in the jury with great frequency uh, when experts go and testify right again the, the big such a big gap between those of us who are in the courtroom testifying and those who like to opine about the courtroom testimony <laughs> it's and I'm not, I'm not accusing her of this. It's just it's a theme that we see all the time, right? In these in these articles, and I'm not I'm not trying to pile on with her. I mean, I'm sure she has probably testified before, but like you said, it, it's something that we already know does get addressed quite a bit. Uh, so third, she talks about within person variability, and later on, she goes into a lot more detail uh, about this to the point of it's impossible to leave the same print the same way, um, you know, two different times. When your fingerprint is rolled uh, in ink or on the scanner, they're holding your finger and they're doing it in this exact way. And that's not the way that you would hold anything that you would touch, like a doorknob or a gun. It's smudged in some way or just different parts of it is is touched. It's impossible to look the same way. To that, well, yeah, that's talk about that all the time and we're very much aware of that. But this kind of goes into the category of the layperson emphasizing the wrong thing in forensics or getting or putting too much weight into the wrong thing uh so like when we talked about the staircase there was lots of times where we'd have discussions with different people that we weren't forensic experts and they were like looking at this evidence and this evidence and like um the defense didn't find any other examples of a beating death where there wasn't either a skull fracture or brain injury yeah that sounds great but as the non-expert, you're, you're putting too much weight into that evidence and not into the other stuff that really matters more. Uh, for us latent print examiners, we know this is a fact, and the, our, our process of comparing takes into the fact that there is some to major distortion between prints made by the same finger. Yeah, um... I mean, it's interesting that she's, you know, she says that every time you leave a fingerprint, it's going to be different. Ironically, um, how do you know that? I mean, just like the unique <laughs> fingerprints. I mean, it, the, actually, the, I, I'm, I'm poking a little bit here, but this was a big problem I had throughout the paper is in one paragraph, she would say something and then turn around. What she just criticized, she would turn around and do herself. Uh, there's a couple other instances where this comes up and it, it, it kind of annoys me a little bit. Um, it's not consistent, and I don't—I I don't know why—but there's there's there are some inconsistencies in the paper. Uh, may I jump ahead to the fourth one? Yeah, please. Yeah, and then the the fourth one here is that most people uh, need to be reminded that there are different kinds of errors in the process, including basically the preservation of fingerprints, the laboratory testing, how it gets reported, and so on. I like that she does bring this up, although she doesn't emphasize the point I would want her to make, is that 
some of those things have no bearing on the actual conclusion of whether or not the fingerprint examiner is going to misidentify someone or not, that if you fail to preserve something, there may not be anything there when you look at it, okay? Um, and she says that sometimes what you're looking at in the lift may look completely different from what was on the original item. Yeah, that may be true. Uh, I, I think it is important that they understand there are different kinds of errors, but I think I would want to focus more on the kinds of errors that could really impact what we're talking about at the, at the task at hand and the case at hand. Which yeah. I, I would say the errors that would matter is like the crime scene officer mislabeling a print, uh, saying it came from, for instance, in South Africa, saying it came from a sure. DVD case instead of a drinking glass. Um, allegedly we don't know that that uh, happened that's, that's an accusation well I mean, we don't know we really i mean i'm right. not trying to be we don't know i mean we've got some experts saying it is and some that aren't exactly uh, that's what i'm saying is that that type of error whether or not it occurred or not is is a different whole point but if a fingerprint id doesn't make sense in the context of the rest of the case it may not be that it's because the fingerprint error a fingerprint yeah. comparison is the error it could be this other part a labeling issue or collection issue or in the case of dna a contamination issue or a sample switch or you know something along those lines instead yeah so i mean these four things you know i know she's going to go into a little more detail and and get into it but my solution is actually pretty simple because i do address at least the first three we'll get the errors a little bit later but i have two in my presentation i tend to give a presentation in court that aids in my testimony. I've never had anyone ban it other than perhaps a, a courtroom that didn't have a, a, a projector. But right, right. we were able to find one, and I think most do these days. I've got two slides. I've got a slide that that starts off by basically saying fingerprints are believed to be you know, from unique skin and that the arrangements are highly variable and that the arrangements do not change throughout our lifetime. And these are two basic principles that allow for fingerprints to be a very effective way to identify people. And then the two slides I have is I have one slide showing how fingerprints can vary quite a bit from uh, I'll, I'll show multiple images of the same finger so and they, they look a little bit different i explained to these jurors that all these images you see on screen are from the same finger laid down just like this and i just demonstrate on the bench one after another and then i powdered and lifted them and you're looking at the same finger four four different times here see how distortion can affect each one and see how they're even though they're all from the same finger they're a little bit different so that's the within variability addressed right there and then the second thing, I, I also then show these images of very similar looking from identical twins. And I say, okay, yep. at first blush, these look quite similar, but then I point out the differences and go, and these are the unique little differences, the, these minutiae that we discussed, these are the things that allow us to differentiate these two. So you get a, you show them a nice close non-match, one that they can even see the, the differences, but at first blush, they look quite similar which addresses your inter-variability. And we have to be careful in some circumstances that they can look quite similar, but you look for these differences. And if you're careful, you can find these differences. So I, to me, those two pictures demonstrates all that she's talking about here. And then a lot of other stuff she's going to get into that, I don't know, I, I, a little mountain on a molehill of things I think can easily be addressed and jurors understand what I believe what I'm saying. 
So uh, what she's getting towards next is is uh, what else can we say instead of likelihood ratios or probabilities to get across to jurors what we mean. And she uses words like uh, random match probability, which has to do with DNA, but most of her examples have to do with latent prints. And kind of the funny thing is, is, well, in latent prints, we don't really, well, except for the Army Crime Lab, we're not really doing this. We're still doing what we've basically always done, is say that we performed a comparison, we reached a conclusion, and we give our expert opinion. In the realm of probabilities at this point, it really is at this point what we're talking about, uh, things like things are highly variable, and one of I wouldn't person, expect to I wouldn't see expect these this. characteristics repeated again. Exactly, which is basically kind of what she's saying here. What she's saying, except except she says, well, but you shouldn't see identification because jurors will misunderstand that. But she says in the previous paragraph, you should just give explanations. That And she gives this example of you give a bunch of numbers, 1, 8, 27, 64, and 125. And you can either just have jurors memorize, lay people memorize those numbers, or you can tell them that what the rule is behind you give them an explanation and say that it's 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 a sequence of, of one two three yeah. four five right of and the cubes of those numbers in which case not only can you memorize the sequence you can come up with the six in the sequence is her example here and continue to come up with numbers because you understand the rule for them they're not just some random numbers you've made an association so she says that people are better at solving problems when they understand the rationale and have an explanation for this relationship so why wouldn't that apply to identification when you explain what identification is? Exactly. Or, and, and my, my biggest thing is when you explain what the likelihood ratio is, when you explain them, <laughs> wh- if you give a number, if let's say I'm a DNA analyst and I give a number and I explain it, I just don't give it, I just don't throw the number out there, I explain it, explain the significance of it, why doesn't that rule that she just talked about work for that? I this is this conflict that really bothered me with the paper was but you just said on the last page this why can't that work here oh well we know that jurors don't understand it um, are, are we, we I don't know are, are we entirely sure about that or maybe they right. do maybe they just choose to do something else with it did was it a lack of understanding or were they choosing to do something else and so I was just struck that what she uh, emphasizes, and, and she says, well, maybe there's another way to phrase it, but the one that she emphasizes here is using the word surprise. I am extremely, yes. extremely, in capitals, surprised to learn that this was, if, if I were to learn that this wasn't the suspect's fingerprint. And again, I, I think this is very similar, at least, to the wording that uh, has been in since the last uh, Swigfast document came out. Uh, something similar has been like that. And, and latent print examiners have been testifying in somewhat this way for for a little while now. Um, but yes, also including the word identification. I, I, I see where she's going with this. I'd be extremely, extremely surprised to learn that this person is not the source of the finger, as opposed to me saying... The chance is, let's say, less than one in a billion, and that's a relatively low thing. In fact, if I was to take a quarter and flip it 30 times in a row, one in a billion is basically getting heads 30 times or so. To me, that seems like something that they could understand. Okay, if I was trying to flip a quarter and get 30 heads in a row, that probability is approximately one in a billion. So I don't like the idea of having to use any motion to describe 
my evidence, if, especially if I have a number, especially. I mean, you, I know – I know we scientist. To, <laughs> right. I'd be surprised. <laughs> I'd be shocked. I'd be gobsmacked to find that find – that. how about – I mean, what about at least the phrase that we have been using? I would not expect that. I would simply would yeah. not expect that. It would seem – in my opinion, it would seem very improbable to occur. This is where I, I think she – missed out on the opportunity of of uh distinguishing how we basically are already doing it in latent prints versus right. other fields that like dna that seem to stick much more to the number thing in many labs uh and, and could move into something you know less just purely numerically based i just i can't imagine a dna scientist going you know i'm not gonna give you these numbers screw these numbers <laughs> i would just be surprised to learn that this wasn't his blood I, come on. No, mm. exactly. That's that's, and I think if the if a DNA analyst did that, the jury might not. Well, good, it would depend on how point. it's phrased. No, the jury, the jury point, is probably actually. expecting this at this point now. After seeing it for so many years, there there is now this whole thing of can we at this point even change? Like, can DNA change and not give a number since this is now what's basically expected of them? Uh, but that would be kind of a phrasing thing because the phrases you were using earlier about like Earth's population or just stopping at like a, less than a billion, um, right? Th- those make sense. So it, it, it also kind of depends on you can't just be like, uh, you know, I'd be surprised if this isn't him. <laughs> I should, and and I, I think you make a great point. We have an expectation of being scientists. Maybe we should actually talk like scientists as opposed to being. I'd be generally surprised to find that out. Yeah, when we go to court, no contacts that day. You got to wear your uh, your actual glasses and and uh, and look the part. The final thing uh, to kind of cover, you know, moving into then you know the, the part that uh, like I had talked about was uh, she was talking about using analogies, and I actually really like this idea because and I use it all the time um, when talking to like attorneys when I could teach the the academy for. Uh, attorneys to learn about forensic science uh, or in even to other forensic scientists uh, I use analogies uh, describing concepts to them and then also obviously in court uh, I think the only problem here is the analogy that she chose is totally off base and it reminds me back to a couple years ago geez maybe three four years ago now there was a uh, appellate court decision that came down from California uh, where the, the court found in favor of fingerprints and then they went through all this the reasoning why they supported fingerprints as being acceptable in court was totally off base do you remember this this discussion yeah Glenn? yeah yes so the the analogy that she emphasizes here is talking about something that everyone on the jury is already an expert at in recognizing faces okay so first off yeah, yeah, we're all as humans experts in identifying faces. So at least right away, that fails kind of the analogy because uh, fingerprint comparisons is something that only trained people are experts in, not just everybody. Uh, and then she goes on to talk about how you still recognize people even though their hair is different or they um, have a, have a bags under their eyes or um, Int- intra variability, intra source variability, which. I see where she's trying to invoke that a little bit. Again, I I still think my pictures of just showing a couple of different fingerprints makes this as opposed to taking them to this other realm of 
facial recognition. Well, but... the big problem with facial recognition, though, in the way that it is done by everybody in the world, you know, on an automatic basis, is it involves remembering from the past what someone looked like before and comparing that to the current view that you have of them in your eyeballs. And that's excellent point. That's not at all what latent fingerprints is like. You put two things side by side and you get to look at them both at the same time and go back and forth. No one compares fingerprints by completely memorizing one print, shredding it, (laughs) and then looking at now their exemplar. It is a back and forth thing. And also difference uh, in general, you take in the face all at once and with fingerprint comparisons, it's a very more, much more exact looking at ridges and features and going back and forth and counting the intervening ridges while with the a face. A systematic process. Yeah, you're not doing that. You're not look, going eye, okay, now look to the other eye. And it's just. And how many pixels is that based on this image and what's that distance? Which is maybe what a facial examiner would actually do, a forensic facial examiner. Right. They would have a systematic process for comparing these. That's not what she's describing here. Yeah, and as as I think we're going to probably end this little portion here discussing the paper, and I, I, I didn't want to be too harsh on it because, I mean, I, I think the heart's in the right place. I think this is one of these things, again, where mm, this might be best left to the experts in that domain to come up with, with better examples or better ways to do this because I, I agree with you. I didn't like the analogies. I get the whole point of connect with jurors, use analogies i love using analogies we have quite a few in the field or show them images that are domain relevant but examples of this give them images as opposed to talking about something theoretically like this like the slides i discussed and if anyone wants a copy of those slides i could put them i could put some of those presentations on our patreon stuff on the I could, i'll do that eric i'll i'll get you the images and we can put them up there for our patreon subscribers if absolutely. they want to see the courtroom presentation i give absolutely and that's that's uh, coming out i'm I'm just about caught up with just uploading all of our episodes to Patreon, and then the next step uh, will be uh, uploading all this extra stuff now. So yeah, if you're a a patron, uh, keep your eyes open for that uh, on the account. All right, so yeah, let's 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 move on to analogies that we use and that we like, and that I, again, I, I think some listeners will probably know these, maybe heard of them. But if there's a new one in there, or you're a little newer to the field, maybe you hadn't thought of these before, so uh, you might find them to be interesting. Before we we get into that, um, why don't we take a short break, Lynn, and uh, why don't you you say a, little, a quick word from our sponsor of this episode? Right, so this episode is sponsored by Idemia, the global leader in augmented identity. Their technology has combined digital and cloud expertise to bring efficiency and next-generation user experiences to their customers. So they want us to talk about one of their new products that they've launched called Case Aphis. It's a portable latent print examination tool supported by the full power of Idemia's flagship MBIS matching algorithms. It is basically a, a real Aphis 
in a laptop. It's totally standalone. You don't need to connect to your main APHIS or internet. You don't need that annoying permission from your your CGIS people or your IT people. You don't need you don't need anyone's permission except the boss to sign the check to, to buy one of these. Uh, it, it's a case APHIS that will enable you to solve your complex and difficult cases faster by searching latent prints collected at a crime scene against known prints on a case-by-case basis. It provides an alternative to examiners who would manually compare a set of latent prints against a known set of persons and suspects within the case apart from your usual APHIS database. The tool will improve your casework efficiency and reduce the thing that you love, Eric, erroneous exclusions. Yep. Learn more about IDEMI and Case APHIS by contacting us at info.usa at IDEMIA. That's I-D-E-M-I-A dot com. Solve your cases faster today with Case APHIS. And to clarify, I don't love erroneous exclusions. I love preventing erroneous exclusions. Yes. Okay. I, yes. Good point. Good so, point. Glenn, why don't you start off with, with uh, one of your favorite uh, uh, analogies to use? Yeah, and one I just just used in, last week in, uh, in court. Uh, and maybe that would be a good moment. I was in North Carolina again for another <laughs> another. Well, this time it was the trial. I'd been there now for three Daubert hearings, two in the same case, mind you. Two Daubert hearings. Yes, I know. I have. I think I have the record now. Two Daubert you, hearings in the same case. How do you even have? Like, did the judge change his mind, or he wanted to hear more information? How'd that even happen? They changed judges, oh. and the new sitting judge said, "Nah, we should probably do this over again." So they brought me in to do it all over again. And do you know who the new sitting judge was in this case? Oh, you had mentioned it to me. It's uh, the pro- the original prosecutor from the staircase, right? Yes, yes, Jim Harden. So uh, Jim Harden is a judge in North Carolina, in uh, Durham County. And yes, so the judge from the or the the prosecutor from the staircase, the the, the man, uh, he uh, from the original episodes, he uh, he is now a judge, and he was the presiding judge for both the Daubert hearing, and then he allowed the evidence, and then I came back and had to testify in the trial, and he was a sitting judge for the trial. So, uh, he's uh, he was he was very warm with the jurors. I noticed he had a good sense of humor with them. He was all business when it came to the proceedings of the court. Very formal, very formal. Every every time you need the check you know notes or approach a witness or any of that stuff you know it was a by the the book stuff right very right. by the book but as soon as the you know the jurors came in he really warmed up and he joked with them a little bit and he was i, I he had a nice rapport with them i thought that was pretty cool okay so what what uh, what analogy did did you use in the, in the case well, I used the rubber stamp one, okay. and the rubber stamp one I got from Pat Wertheim. So, um, shout out to be to to Pat, <laughs> uh, and, and uh, Pat shared this with us years ago. I don't know if he got it, you know, if he came up with it, but I learned it in his class. So it's it's the rubber stamp, and if you think of your, let's say, your finger as a rubber stamp, uh, it's usually used in the analogy of it starts off with. Is it true that every time you leave an impression behind, that impression will be identifiable? Well, no. In fact, a person can touch an object and not leave behind identifiable impressions. If you think of your finger as a rubber stamp and the ink that you would put on your rubber stamp and and your rubber stamp has a unique message – 
If, of course, you take your thumb or finger and touch a surface with no ink on it, well, that's a lot like touching a surface after you've just wiped your hands or dried them or washed them, and there's no residue that we discussed earlier. Uh, that residue is not on your finger, so you can touch a surface all day and not leave any impressions behind that would be usable. The second thing, of course, is that if you take your thumb and you drag it across the surface like a rubber stamp, you'd smear it, just like it would be illegible if you took an ink rubber stamp and dragged it across the surface. Uh, and then uh, the second, uh, the third thing being the surface itself, if the surface is disrupted yep. or fabric or this or uh, diffusive, uh, you know, you might not be able to see the message because it's all interrupted by the surface. And then the fourth thing being the environment, of course. So you just you just talk about your finger like a unique rubber stamp. And then I, I always do a lot of visual stuff, and I hold out my thumb and show them the way a rubber stamp would would go. So it's one it's one of my favorites. I use it all the time. Yeah, yeah. I remember that from from even back in training of. Uh of using that analogy to describe that to, to the jurors. So one of the ones, and again, I, I don't know if, if I just started adapting it after I heard it from someone else or, um, or what, but, uh, especially when I started talking about like scars, um, I like the idea of the fingerprint being like a page from a book. Uh, mm. so if you say rip a page out of a book, look at that whole page, you can usually tell what book that came from. Uh, because of you know all the words on the page, heck, even the title of the book might be right across the the, the top of the page. Uh, if, but if there's a scar that goes down to that generating level of skin, it's like tearing that page in half and then kind of sloppily taping it back together, not being necessarily careful. The the pages might not line back up. The lines and the words may not line right back up. And the tape may even give you all bundled because scars sometimes have that puckering effect in there. Uh, but after it's all back together, you can tell that it was torn in half and messily repaired. But you can also pretty much read the whole page. You may have to do some some like skipping to figure out what line you're on as you go across the scar. But most of the words are still readable. Uh, almost all the words are still readable. And much like in a fingerprint, getting having a scar isn't something that's going to totally obliterate the chance of making identification, uh, but it's just going to have this now new scar in there. And then in fingerprints, now that scar is permanent. So now that that book with that tear in there is now even super unique because all those words being slightly off are now also unique features. Yeah, that's good. Kind of expanding on that, I've also described how uh, sometimes if you just get a small portion, you may not be able to tell what what book that came from because maybe all the words you have there is, you know, uh, yesterday I went outside, comma, and then you're like, okay, I have no idea where that came from. It could be in many, many different books. Uh, it's not specific enough for me really to even bother comparing because I'm not going to be able to focus it down on there. But if you say something along the lines of, uh, Voldemort and Harry Potter dot 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 you can eliminate large numbers of books no there's no Star Wars book or Lord of the Rings book that have the words Harry Potter and Voldemort in it uh, so those it's going to be easy to exclude all of those it may still not be enough information to identify uh, somebody uh, you know which Harry Potter book we're talking about here but um, so that's kind of expanding that book analogy to different types of features have different discriminating powers. 
Yeah, I, I like that. Uh, one that uh, I, I, I can't remember the exact source of it. I know they posted it on the CLPEX a while ago and John Blackster using it. And I'm, I apologize to the individual if I don't, if I'm not giving them credit here. But it was this concept of coins in your pocket to make sufficiency. And he used this analogy of if I'm trying to basically make change for a dollar, and you think of a dollar as this, you know, sufficiency point, and I'm trying to make change for a dollar, there's different ways that you could do this. You could give 100 pennies, you could give four quarters, you could give, you know, two quarters and five dimes, that what constitutes change for a dollar changes from each time depending on you know what's available so just like your specificity thing you know maybe some features are worth a quarter whereas smaller features that are more common are maybe pennies or nickels and so what it takes for me to make the change for the dollar to get to the dollar to get to sufficiency will depend really on what's present there in the latent print and that each of these characteristics, you know, differ in their discriminability and their value, just like coins differ in their value. And if you've got more common things, it may take a lot more to get there. Or lower quality things, it might take more to get there. And I, th- I thought that's a, it's a good example. The only little criticism I have of that is that a dollar is a dollar. And it's a constant, <laughs> whereas the sufficiency seems to vary a little bit. And we know that there's, you know, they, it varies from person. You, what, you, what is a dollar to you may not be a dollar to me. Well, then maybe we expand on that. And, and you, you know, you ask for change for dollar or euro or uh, right. In another uh, country Canadian dollar. So there rate, you go. Right. Change for a dollar. Well, that can be different depending on if you're talking about a U.S. dollar or Canadian dollar or Australian dollar. Right. Uh, so maybe, maybe, maybe we can make that little adjustment to the analogy to make it work even better. Uh, yeah. So, no, and that's great because then sometimes you're, you know, you're like, okay, in order to compare it, for it to be sufficient for comparison, I need to make, you know, have basically a dollar's worth of change. Well, if you, you know, look into your pocket, look at the latent print, and you've got, you know, seven bucks worth of coins in your pocket, hey, <laughs> just start start in on it you know you can you can you know you're going to be able to make that change just uh just you can spend all day at the arcade with that latent print <laughs> so one that that i started using a couple years ago and it was it, i was just standing in my supervisor's office and all of a sudden i was just trying to like describe to him like this idea that i had of of like something that the lawyers that I was going to be teaching them could do to kind of get an idea of, of what I was talking about when I met, thought about uh, suitability for comparison, sufficiency for ID versus sufficiency for exclusion. Um, I just started talking about where's Waldo. And mm-hmm. um, I, I put up on these slides uh, some some pictures from the old where's Waldo or I think it's where is it where's Wally, I believe, in the UK. Waldo's got oh, a different really? name. Yeah. No, I mean, I know it's different in France. It's uh, Oué Charlie. Charlie, Where right. is Charlie? Right. Okay. I think, but I think in the UK it's it's Wally. Hmm. But with the idea of depending on what the comparison, it may be easier or harder. And depending on if you're identifying or excluding, again, it may be easier or harder. So first I put up uh, a, a Where's Waldo kind of cropped in where you see Waldo and there's not many other people around him, but it's kind of cropped in so that, hey, there he is, as 
that's a pretty easy identification to make. He's just standing there. There's nothing really in the way. You see all the features of Waldo, the jeans, the stripes, the cane, the hat, the the glasses, the whole thing that makes up all the features that make up Waldo. So then I uh, show him another picture, again, cropped from what the book shows to a section of the book that doesn't have Waldo in it. And then say, okay, go ahead and find Waldo or tell me that he's not here. Where's Waldo? Playing that game, right, has this Mm -hmm. kind of contract with the reader that he's there. (laughs) That game would be way harder and way less fun for the kids playing it if on some pages he's just not there. Uh, right. That, that kind of uh, takes some of the fun away from it. Uh, so uh, anyway, that kind of... You know. well, or looks slightly different than you were expecting. His hat is slightly off-colored. Or he's not holding the cane anymore. or Because that's blurred out in the picture. And that's what I show. Sometimes I show them uh, pictures where, where you see Waldo Waldo's legs. And... Uh, some people will will go through the whole picture and say, nope, he's not there. And that's kind of like an erroneous exclusion. Uh, so yeah. look, look right there. Those are his legs. Uh, so he is there. You, yeah. know, you need to recognize that if you don't have enough information, sometimes an exclusion isn't warranted. So Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I like that one. And it, if I may, uh, yeah. Carrie Hall uses that one, but she uses it differently. She uses it for when talking about case aphis. She talks about how much harder it is to find Waldo when you've got, let's say, a million uh, people to look for Waldo and how difficult that is when you have a large population and that there's more competition with close non-matches to Waldo, people that are wearing similar clothing to Waldo, especially if Waldo is not there to begin with, you might find something very close to Waldo where your impression of Waldo might go, well, maybe that's him. Well, there's maybe. Waldina and there's yeah. Oddlaw. Oddlaw is evil Waldo. Um, yes. Uh, yes. Waldo's spelled backwards, yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. There's a whole bunch of other little characters and some other things that, especially if Waldo isn't there and you've got millions to look at, you could be confused. You think you have found Waldo. But the nice thing about a case aphis environment where you have now, let's say, you know, instead of millions of exemplars, you've got eight people you're comparing in an aphis database and you're using aphis to search eight people. Well, it's and Waldo is one of them, uh, or not, it's so much easier for it to determine that. And the accuracy is going to be very different using an APHIS for those purposes than for a large data. In other words, if it's not there, you can be a lot more certain that it is not there because the competition is not as hard as when it's millions and millions of people. That it's a much easier problem. So the last one I want to talk about uh, real briefly before we end the episode is uh, is the scale analogy. Yeah, the, the you know the scale analogy I first heard from Pat Wertheim as well. It was another one that he used to teach in his class. And after you finish, I'll I'll add something on there. But I, I still use it today in the the advanced ASV class that I talk about. I actually quite like it, and you'll see why in a minute. 
So the, with the scale analogy, essentially what you what you start out with is uh, is like a balance. Um, like I don't know about you, Glenn, but my my grandma had a, an old balance to measure uh, mail. Where instead of like now you have these digital scales where you can you put the letter on there, it tells you how much it weighs. You know, she had these nice brass weights that go on one side of the balance and then the letter on the other side. Uh, yeah, for measuring out her drugs. Yeah, I know. <laughs> my grandma had one too. <laughs> How else? Do, how else do grandmas weigh out their meth and cocaine? <laughs> their dime bags. My sweet grandmother got woozy if she smelled a glass of wine. She. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, that, that's kind of the the analogy here. So uh, as uh, I begin a comparison, it's it's level, and the two sides that I'm looking at is either identification or not an identification. That's that's what I'm weighing here, and as I'm finding uh, little uh, features that seem to line up, that agree, feature, you know, points of agreement, then those are little rocks leaning towards that agreement, the identification side. And uh, the main use that I, I start off, started off using this analogy for is to, to start trying to move away from ending this reliance on the one dissimilarity doctrine, uh, which says that if you have a difference, an unexplained difference, that uh, you throw away the scale, the whole balance idea, and then you just don't identify anything. And I think it's much more appropriate to take that difference as a big rock leaning away from identification. And depending on the difference, it could be really big or only kind of big, but still a rock on that side. But as you start finding more and more features, 20, 30, 50, 100 points in common, then those can tip the scale still towards identification, even though there's this difference there on the other side. And those rocks all vary in size. If you have a real generic around a delta kind of points, they're fairly small rocks. If they're very discriminating features, like a, a Z with a forked tail, that'll be a much bigger rock towards the identification side. So that's kind of the, the idea of, uh, of the balance of the scale analogy uh for identification or not as you're weighing whether or not to make that decision during the evaluation phase yeah and i I like that too and one of the things i always found very interesting was it's essentially describing a probabilistic approach even though (laughs) examiners wouldn't necessarily think of what they do as probabilistic it very much is the difference is that you're says you're assigning subjective probabilities weights to each of those features and maybe the biggest difference between that model and dna is that they have a database and a model to tell them exactly how much weight to put on each corresponding feature we use training experience judgment whatever knowledge we might have or exposure to models and papers and statistics to inform our judgments about that weight. But essentially, it is a probabilistic model that each feature either supports the hypothesis, the proposition they're from the same source, or supports that they're from different sources. And you weight that evidence, the rock, on the scale based on this knowledge, the subjective knowledge, you're putting these subjective probabilities to tip the scale one way or the other towards identification or towards, you know, towards an exclusion, same source or different source. And I, I always appreciated that Pat wasn't a big fan of probabilities back in the day, <laughs> but yet 
gave a, a model and analogy that was very probabilistic. Right. No, and I even go further than that because I, what I really emphasize is that it's either towards identification or away from an identification. And then there's a separate balance or scale to weigh whether or not to exclude or not exclude uh, because it's yeah, kind of different, uh, different features there. So while you have that forked uh, Z, the tail, the, the Z with the forked tail being a big rock for the identification on that side, if you don't find those similarities, now you're looking to exclude the features that tend to be closer to the delta tend to, in, just in general, tend to be small rocks for the identification balance, but they tend to be big rocks for the exclusion balance because those are Good much point. more reliable when you're really close to it. And if features are really far away from a delta, then you have to do a lot more searching, and then those features become less reliable for the scale. So that's then kind of the next step of how I use the scale is is to describe how this conclusion process involves really two scales that are measuring different things. Uh, or measuring yep. the same things in different ways, giving them different weights for the different conclusions. Uh, and then it, it's still, the scale analogy is something familiar for latent print examiners in general for the identification, because people talk all the time about just needing one more point, that kind of stuff, and then extending that into the exclusion realm to get people thinking about, just more critically about exclusions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, as we sort of wrap this up here, I'd love to hear from listeners some analogies that listeners use or have found effective. I mean, there, there's there's quite a few other analogies we you know, we didn't cover or get to. I've heard uh, comparing fingerprints is a lot like comparing maps, or you know, to you know, topography or looking at Google Maps or something. You're seeing the street view and all these trees, and you're comparing it to you know the street map. That's a lot like using landmarks and the fingerprint to compare back and forth. Okay. Uh, and, and I do. I think that's a really good analogy uh, if people compare maps uh, when you're looking at the, the real thing versus what's on paper. Where you're tr- and using those landmarks and distances and roads, counting the intervening roads between, you know, they get to that lake landmark. I think I think that's a really good good analogy, too. And any other short ones that you've heard of? I think that's enough analogies for this episode. Do want to give listeners opportunity if they have any ones that they like to use to uh, to write those in, uh, remind us of, of anything that we may have forgotten or we may have just never heard of or used before because uh, a lot of those analogies aren't necessarily in textbooks. They just kind of come word of mouth from your trainer and uh, you just kind of pick them up that way. So it can be also very localized, just like the words that you use to describe over-unders or handshakes or, you know, those kinds of terms. You just kind of inherit from the people that teach you how to compare. So, uh, Glenn, um, you have some classes coming up you want to talk about, yes? Yes. As, as a matter of fact, i uh, got some new classes to add and uh, some some old ones, but they're, they're now going to be on the books. So if anyone's interested in the spring... There is going to be a new exclusions and sufficiency class I teach with John Black. That is going to be in Baton Rouge. That will be April 29th to May 3rd. There will also be an advanced ACE V class, and that will be in Hackensack, New Jersey. It's about uh, 30 minutes outside of uh, New York City. I love playing Hackensack. (laughs) Hackensack, yeah. Uh, good one. Uh, that will be April 8th to the 12th in Hackensack, 
New Jersey. I'll be teaching that uh, AAA class. But I am excited to talk about a new class that is yeah. just being added to the roster through RSNA, and it's being hosted at Idemia's headquarters in um, Anaheim. So if anyone wants oh, yeah, to go yeah. go to, what is it, Disney World that's in California? Disneyland. Disneyland, okay. All right, Disneyland, Anaheim. Uh, January 8th through the 10th. So there's not a lot of turnaround time on this. So January 8th to 10th at the beginning of the new year, a brand new class that's being offered. So if you've gone through the whole litany of RSNA classes and looking for something new, this could be for you. This is a, a three-day class where we will be using Case APHIS to solve cases and teach people how to use Case APHIS and build these Case APHIS specific databases for their cases, as well as going over uh, documentation methods using freeware like GIMP. And so we'll teach people how to use you know freeware like that, uh, how to use freeware like ULW software for quality maps. We'll talk about some other documentation methods. We're going to be trying to get a statistical model as well for the class using some freeware as well and going over statistical models and basically using technology to enhance your ACEV process. And in fact, that's the name of the class is Incorporating Technology into the ACEV Process. Brand new class. Very excited to be teaching this and uh, we'll see how this goes. And sometimes we get these questions, uh, you know, we haven't bought a case APHIS yet, but we're interested in one. It's okay. You can take the class and you can borrow one uh, from Idemia and you can test drive it for a little bit and you can learn how to use it and see if it's something that you think would be right for your agency. So brand new class. I'm very excited to, to, to see how this goes. All right. And uh, for me uh, coming up, I don't have dates set yet, but I'm definitely looking to move forward with uh, teaching some exclusionology classes go ahead and let me know that you're interested and i can keep you updated once we finally do have uh, dates uh, with those agencies and i also want to talk about a new class that uh, hopefully we'll talk with you more in detail later maybe even do an episode on it once uh, uh once i've got some more stuff put together called gyro in photoshop uh, so the idea of that class would be for agencies that are using Photoshop for their comparisons. Uh, I did a, a demo at the uh, II conference and talked a little bit about that, uh, about how to kind of make some adjustments, uh, use some actions and other tools in Photoshop to make that a little bit more user-friendly to the latent print examiner especially uh, using gyro for the markup, uh, but also some other uh, tools to uh, kind of turn Photoshop into more of a latent print examination tool. Uh, so uh, for the agencies that that's their you know image on-screen comparison software, uh, then there's definitely some, some ways to improve it uh, and uh, do more documentation uh, with Photoshop uh, using some of these tools and, and uh, definitely want to get the uh, that class out there. So if you're interested in that class, uh, you can go to rayforensics.com or also email me for more information. Yeah, you know, I saw your presentation at the IAI on it, and it was really good. I mean, I really enjoyed it, and that, that'd be a class I would be very interested myself in taking, too. I think it's a cool idea. And as, as you point out, too, you know, you're focused on those agencies that are already using Photoshop. That was one of the things I started considering, too. I would love to use Photoshop in these classes, but I thought, why not use, you know, for me, the freeware right, where right. agencies that can't afford 
Photoshop or just will never use it. But this free GIMP, you know, is just available, and I'm I'm still learning how to use it. It's uh, a little a little more complicated. You know, <laughs> I, I like Photoshop. In fact, it is my preferred tool for documentation. But it's nice that there's this freeware alternative if your agency won't spring for Photoshop. And and GIMP does have a Photoshop skin that makes it look a lot and feel a lot more like Photoshop. So you can definitely look at that. If you're interested in any of that, have any responses for us, you know, please email us, eric at rayforensics.com or glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. And you can also keep up with us uh, on Twitter at DoubleLoopPod. Please uh, check us out on patreon.com, patreon.com slash DoubleLoopPodcast. Even if you haven't, uh, if you're not a patron, just kind of go there, poke around and kind of see what that's like and then what you uh, would get for your money. Um, even a dollar a month would definitely uh, help us move forward with better equipment uh, and just uh, growing as a, a podcast. Uh, we've been at this for over five years now, and uh, even just this year, man, we have exploded in the number of listeners and uh, in the reach that uh, that we have. So that's really exciting, and uh, we just want to, to grow even more and reach out to all those latent print examiners, forensic scientists, and those with the interest uh, in forensic science. Please check us out on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher. Uh, give us ratings. Uh, we're definitely looking for those. Reviews uh, would help us out as well. Uh, the opinions expressed on this podcast belong to us and not any agency that I work for. Talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Bye.